posturing. If the same old senseless posturing has got you ready to junk your terrarium and start raising sea monkeys, hold the bus. You've got the bragging rights to the best mix of freeform music and public affairs right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3, radio free, no lying. I can speak 12 languages and turn into plastic, man. Well, I could talk to animals and turn into Stretch Armstrong and The Flash. I've seen Star Wars and Planet of the Apes 8 trillion times. Yeah, well, I've seen Tatum O'Neill naked. Yeah, well, I could eat 900 boxes of Count Chocula, and my uncle used to host Whopper Room, and he knows Count Chocula, Godzilla, and Bruce Lee personally. I've got an iron neck. Hey, I thought I told you to keep it down in there. If I hear one more word, you're getting head cheese for dinner, and I mean it. I can juggle machetes. Man, I ate the brown acid at Woodstock. You liar. You liar indeed. A classic station ID there. Thanks to Yelchin for engineering that previous show and also for providing me the prep time to set up for Gray Matters this afternoon. Or evening, if you will. Hello, my name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be your host tonight uh, doing a solo program. Dick Whaley is visiting family and uh, taking care of some things. And so, as he often has done for me when I'm swamped with my academic work, whether it be my own studies or those of my students, I'm happy to uh, help out. And so, uh, we're going to cover a little bit of ground here today on the program. I'm going to talk about a recent book. I've got some shorter little brain damage items as we typically start out with. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Pakistan. There's been some interesting things going on in that country that we've uh, just been kind of pushing to the back burner for the last couple of weeks on this program due to other pressing concerns. And uh, actually end the program probably with a short uh, film review of a couple of recent films. It's a very active and busy uh, summer for films here in the USA. And so I want to comment on a couple of those blockbuster-type films, and uh, which I've actually seen, unusually, for me. But uh, we'll start with the Brain Damage Awards and uh, similar such things. Well, in a clipping from Sunday, July 1st, Ann Arbor News... It's revealed in a very short article that the Michigan Department of Transportation has contacted, that's contacted, not contracted, uh, much to my relief, a organization called the Reason Foundation, a Los Angeles think tank, which was contacted by MDOT about the possibility of toll roads in Michigan. This is, I think, a desperate suggestion uh, in uh, what I think would be a feeble attempt to ease some of the congestion on Michigan's highways, especially here in southeast Michigan. We have several corridors, which, as listeners are no doubt well aware, certain times of day, driving is really just parking. And uh, I'm not really sure that uh, toll roads 
are the answer and whether or not the Reason Foundation is going to single-mindedly pursue it from that vantage point. Uh, the gentleman's quote, um, Robert Poole, uh, is just rather bizarre. He says, quote, a lot of people may be willing to pay a toll, not necessarily every day, but at certain times, like when they need to catch a plane, make a business meeting, pick the kids up from daycare, close quote. You mean when they're running about the errands of their daily business? Um, I'm willing to pay a toll because I want to catch my plane on time at Detroit Metro. Uh, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how toll roads work. Um, really, the problem with highways in Michigan is that there's too much truck traffic, not enough carpooling, and where in the world is the light commuter rail? There are a number of people who either live in Jackson and work here in Ann Arbor or live here in Ann Arbor and work in Detroit who would be delighted to take a light rail to and from their workplaces in those cities. Uh, this is the approach which the state of Michigan should consider. And uh, I don't think, sadly, that they are likely to do so. Uh, interesting article that I probably won't talk about too much today, but another state legislator has suggested that uh, water bottlers should be taxed. Now, this is not a brain-damaged idea. I think this is probably a good idea because, as it stands, many commercial bottlers of water... Um, pay nothing for the groundwater that they are then packaging and reselling uh, under, you know, glorified uh, commercialized names like Ice Mountain and AbsoPure. Um, AbsoPure, of course, is the largest bottler in Michigan, and they are selling you your own groundwater. I think taxing that would probably be a good idea. And hey, who knows, maybe such a tax could even be used to uh, work towards the development of some sort of light commuter rail. Well, another brain damage award, I think, and this is something that's a couple of weeks old, but again, haven't been able to get to in the midst of other things. Uh, the protests outside of uh, U.S. Representative John Dingell's office in Ypsilanti, I think, are short-sighted and really kind of foolish. There's this uh, attempts to tar Dingle as a dinosaur with regards to his energy policies. Um, these uh, the people from MoveOn.org have been gathering and protesting, and I just think that uh, Dingle's record. Uh, yeah, he's you know the the situation that Dingle's people put it in. Uh, it, actually, the position is defended best, I think, by uh, UAW representatives um, who want to draw the attention to the fact that, well, if there are going to be uh, anybody who's going to be hurt from attempts to fast forward the cafe standards, it's going to be workers. We've seen how the uh, big three automakers have had no problems in letting thousands and thousands of workers go. Uh, it's a delicate balance between preservation of jobs and uh, forcing uh, an industry, admittedly, that's the industry, that's the dinosaur, not Dingle. Um, I think his record speaks for itself with regards to uh, not only the environment, but workers' concerns as well. So there's probably better things that MoveOn.org could protest than John Dingle's office. Um, another brief... 
I don't know if a brain damage award really counts for this, but uh, a letter in yesterday's Ann Arbor News, uh, I think had the right spirit, but was in some ways factually inaccurate. The letter uh, to the editor was entitled, and I assume these titles are uh, designated by editors, not by writers, New Stadium Structure Resembles Nazi Pavilion. And this is a letter critical of the uh, development at the U of M football stadium, which some people rather bizarrely call the big house. Uh, to me, growing up as a cinemaphile, uh, that's always meant prison. So I never understood why the Michigan stadium is referred to as the big house. But anyway, this gentleman from Ann Arbor, uh, Thomas Atkins, writes, The massive structure plan for the west side of the Michigan Stadium brings to mind a notable example of Nazi architecture, architecture, namely the German pavilion constructed for an international exposition in Paris, 1937. Blah, blah, blah. He goes on to talk about uh, how this structure towers over the people below, projecting an exaggerated strength that seems militaristic. What... He's referring to here is the architectural stylings of Albert Speer. So really what the developments and changes to the U of M stadium um, amount to is not so much uh, something that looks like a Nazi structure, but the fact that the Nazi architectures were going for the Roman look. Here in America, we like to go for the Roman look. And that's actually the look that the Nazis were going for, too, that thousand-year Reich idea. Um I think the stadium's plenty big. I've only been to a couple of games there myself uh, in my four decades <clears throat> on the planet. And uh, it seems plenty big to me, but, uh, you know, there's no stopping them if they want to have their luxury booths for the elite. Um, real interesting, uh, humorous uh, column, as usual, I guess lately she's been quite funny, uh, from Maureen Dowd, reprinted in uh, the Sunday Ann Arbor News. Uh, it's beginning to look like Maureen Dowd is a sort of uh, beginning to uh, favor John Edwards as a candidate amongst the Democrats. She's uh, spoken about uh, his uh, verbal confrontations with Ann Coulter on a number of occasions. She's talked about uh, John Edwards' wife's response and... Uh, this most recent column for her, as reprinted in the Ann Arbor News, uh, basically lists uh, a couple of interesting things about John Edwards. Um, I appreciate the fact that he's never seen The Sopranos, as I never have either. I did find amusing, though, in this, the references to I.F. Stone, uh, the great uh, progressive journalist. Um, <laughs> and here's what I'll just read this passage from uh, uh, Dowd's column. After Edwards told George Stephanopoulos that The Trial of Socrates by I.F. Stone was, quote, a wonderful book, close quote, Bob Novak jumped on him, claiming that he had chosen a book by a radical journalist identified as a covert Soviet agent. Uh, when he found out about this, uh, Edwards laughed and said of Bob Novak, wait till he finds out I also like Langston Hughes. Well, John Edwards at least has good taste in reading material. And uh, you might not like his, his Breck girl hair, but uh, Izzy Stone was a scholar as well as a radical journalist. And he, in fact, uh, learned ancient Greek so that he could study the texts necessary to write that book, The Trial of Socrates, which, if memory serves, was his last book before he died. Um, Bob Novak, of course, <laughs> is no stranger to uh, covert 
and radical because, of course, he is a radical extremist himself who somewhat uncovertly uh, was involved very directly in the outing of Valerie Blame. So, Bob Novak, brain damage award for you if they can find it. Uh, the brain, that is. Uh, also interesting is the fact that uh, more and more Republicans are breaking ranks on the war, the most recent being Senator Pete Domenici of New Mexico, who says, quote, we cannot continue asking our troops to sacrifice indefinitely while the Iraqi government is not making measurable progress. And uh, he's supported it all along up until now. Oh, here's a rather upsetting item. Why this is upsetting will be obvious, of course, after I read it, but it's upsetting for other reasons as well which I hope to uh, articulate. But first, I'll read it. This is Dateline uh, July 6th and uh, from Toronto. Um, A report from Canada about contaminated fish in the Great Lakes released Thursday suggests the waters are filled with toxic chemicals that threaten human health. The report by by Environmental Defense followed trends in Ontario's annual guide to eating sport fish and found consumption advisories are generally getting worse. The organization tracked advisories for four species of fish in 13 locations across the Great Lakes. Lake Ontario fared the worst over time, with eight categories of fish that became more contaminated between 2005 and 2007, and only one category that improved. Now... We don't necessarily need to eat a lot of Great Lakes fish. In fact, it's been known by Michiganders for years that it's probably not a good idea. In fact, it's specifically uh, encouraged that uh, pregnant women and children not eat it at all. But the fact that the toxins are getting worse over this time span, 2005 to 2007, is quite striking indeed. Now, this to me seems like a fairly major news story. We're talking about the greatest mass of fresh water in uh, North America, and yet this story uh, is as short as what you just heard me read, and it's buried on page A6. Well, of course, we have to have pictures on the front page of children frolicking in the water, and old ladies with their knitting or whatever the front page photo was for the day in question. Well, we talked about this a little bit last week when Dick was here. The price of oil is surging towards record highs. This from uh, Financial Times weekend edition, this most recent weekend. Crude oil prices yesterday surged above $76 a barrel, the highest level in 11 months on renewed unrest in Nigeria's oil-producing region and the lack of any moves by the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries to lift production. Low U.S. petrol inventories ahead of an anticipated surge in demand uh, during the summer holiday season provided additional support. That language is kind of cute, isn't it? Additional support for this increase in the price of the resource. Well, support is a friendly word if you're looking at it from a business uh, profit perspective. But uh, from a consumer standpoint, uh, this is more like a kick in the shins than uh, a support. And let's see here. Here we go. The all-time high of uh, $78.65 a barrel um, may uh, be something we'll be seeing again soon. Uh, 
if these trends continue. Well, there's an interesting item that I'll probably have to save for another time about, well, what the heck, we can go into it quickly here today, about the future of the U.S. Post Service. Now, I've done programs before in which I've talked about uh, deleting the obsolete penny, getting rid of the dollar, the paper dollar, and going to a uh, dollar coin as ways in which the federal government can save money uh, and yet still provide services, which, you know, the government of a sovereign state should be able to do. That's what makes it all legitimate and real, right? Well, here's an interesting article from July 7th, uh, Associated Press by Randolph Schmidt. Mail service may be undeliverable about the many ways in which the communications of uh, human business and activities have changed. We're talking about the internet, the cell phone, the digital age that we're in now. And what is the future of the post office? Well, according to this article, in 1993, Postmaster General Marvin Runyon drew a barrage of criticism for suggesting mail delivery might be cut to four days a week. That was a bombshell then, but it's something postal experts say may still be a possibility. Well, I've argued for years that the post office could save a lot of money by discontinuing Saturday mail. Uh, it makes sense to uh, provide this service during the business week. After all, one of the sectors in which our economy has experienced growth in the last eight years is in the mail order business. Uh, all the people who are ordering things from Amazon and other uh, mail order internet-related houses, those are a lot of jobs involved with the shipping and delivery of that. Um, However, if we wanted to streamline and cut back postal service to four days a week, well, this might be the first step towards the four-day week for all workers and students that uh, I think um, would be favorable uh, for a number of reasons uh, for everybody. Um, of course, part of what's driving these considerations are the cost of the advertising mailers. Yes, that's right. Those people's business needs are driving the entire service of the post office. Now, I've always thought it's great. I've got a friend who lives in Alaska. I can pop a couple of stamps. What is it now? 41 cents uh, onto an envelope. And my friend in Alaska will be able to receive a handwritten message from me. Uh, that's kind of cool. you know. Um, and that's a great service. And yet it's the needs of the advertising mailing industry that really drive uh, the decisions about uh, cost effectiveness at the post office. Um, the only significant growth, back to the article, area is standard mail, which is primarily advertising, he said. And as the cost of postage rises, at what point do you start losing that volume growth? And let's face it, how much of that advertising mail do you even look at? I throw most of it away or put it into the recycle bin, and I imagine that most of us do as well. So what's the point of mailing around all this crap that nobody really looks at in the end anyway? But here's an idea, and we'll end on this note, and it's a good way to uh, kind of wrap it all up in a nice little package. Let's, dear listeners, let's reinvigorate the, uh, the lost art of letter writing. Hey, when was the last time you wrote your grandma a letter? Or if your grandma is no longer uh, amongst the living, as is the case with myself, then write a letter to somebody else, uh, some other friend. It's nice to get mail from an actual human being. Um, you know, cell phones are great. 
email is wonderful, but an actual letter is something very special indeed. So uh, put a couple of uh, dimes together into a postage stamp and, and write a letter. Well, let's quickly deal with some of the uh, random uh, weirdness that's going on in Pakistan. Um, now, one of the critiques I had of Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 movie was that he focused uh, almost obsessively on the Saudi business connections to the Bush uh, family uh, or Bush administration or Bush crime syndicate, however you wish to characterize it. And while there are a number of uh, entwined tendrils there, really... The government and intelligence services of Pakistan uh, are, to me, a lot more interesting with regards to 9-11, with regards to the uh, nebulous war on terror. And there's a lot that we don't know and don't understand about the region as uh, Americans. Uh, Pakistan is, uh, is a key country in this uh, factor. And uh, look at the stuff that's going on there just recently. We've got the uh, rebel uh, fundamentalist clerics who are holding out in the mosque humorously, one of whom tried to escape uh, in a burqa. Now, the uh, leader of this group has said that they won't come out with their heads bowed. They're, they'd rather have their heads cut off than to bow down, but apparently some of them are willing to get into a burqa. Uh, rather than do either of the above. And while that's somewhat amusing, uh, the situation is obviously fairly tense. Well, there's a political background here and context uh, within which uh, all this stuff is occurring. Uh, most significantly, I think, and most recently, is the fact that there was actually another assassination attempt on Musharraf, which the government of Pakistan is denying because, well... You don't want to acknowledge such things. So from the Financial Times weekend edition again of July 7th, July 8th, um, General Pervez Musharraf, Pakistan's military ruler, escaped unharmed after gunmen fired at his aircraft as it took off yesterday, while a radical cleric holed up with hundreds of followers at an Islamabad mosque said they would rather die than surrender. So indeed, uh, kind of a busy weekend. Now, if guys are shooting at your aircraft, um, hmm. Yeah, the military denied there had been an assassination attempt on General Musharraf, but a senior Pakistani security official said this appears to have been an attempt on the president. Fortunately, it didn't succeed. Um, that's interesting. Now, what do the regular people who live in the region of this mosque think? Well, according to this article by uh, Farhan Bokhari uh, in Islamabad, writing for the Financial Times, he quotes uh, a neighbor, Janula Katak, who had come out uh, briefly to buy some essential groceries because there have been, uh, you know, shutdowns and closures uh, of local businesses and stuff in the area since the military is all over the place. Uh, this local says life is very miserable in these conditions. I would just like to see this end quickly, even if that means the government storms the mosque. Well, that may yet occur. Something else that may yet occur is that Musharraf may, in fact, uh, lose the upcoming elections, which are scheduled to occur later this year. Um, about three weeks ago, the Financial Times had a couple of interesting articles about the uh, political stakes in Pakistan and the re-emergence of uh, Benazir Bhutto, leader of the uh, Pakistan People's Party, uh, who of course has been exiled for a number of years. Uh, she's wanting to return and uh, in some ways is joining forces with another exiled politician, Nawaz Sharif, 
who have called for fair elections. Well, interestingly enough, the U.S. government has called for fair and free elections, too. John Negroponte, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, uh, offered continued support to Musharraf, although he also stresses Washington's desire to see Pakistan's president guide the country to free and fair elections later this year. Musharraf is, in fact, under U.S. pressure to honor a pledge to step out of uniform by December, hopefully into some sort of lovely evening gown, or perhaps a burqa, we don't know, uh, some sort of civilian clothes, something more comfortable, uh, comfortable, that is, for the Bush administration, uh, and uh, abandon plans to be reelected by the outgoing parliament before fresh elections throw up a less favorable electoral college. Um, this is something that will be occurring within the next few months, and it's worth noting. Uh, in an interview with the Financial Times, Benazir Bhutto, uh, who in fact was the uh, first female prime minister in the Islamic world uh, some 20 years ago at the uh, tender age of 35, she was quite a cutie too at the time, I thought. Uh, forgive the uh, personal intrusion there. Uh, in an interview with the Financial Times, Benazir Bhutto warned that the U.S. Uh, she warned the U.S. rather. Uh, I'm quoting from Joe Johnson's uh, article in this issue of the Financial Times. Uh, Bhutto warned the U.S. that a further prolonged period of unrepresentative military rule in Pakistan would encourage the spread of extremism and anti-Americanism, creating a severe backlash against Western interests in this strategically located country of 150 million people. Quote, very little of the $10 billion in U.S. aid has trickled down to the people, she says. As people get poorer and as unemployed figures go higher, they say that the reason we're suffering is because we don't have representative government, uh, because the U.S. needs Mushara for the war in Afghanistan. They see that identification and they react against it. That's right, folks. $10 billion in U.S. aid. And where is it going? To prop up the military dictator of Pakistan, who ostensibly is our friend. Well, there's a lot of things that the uh, Pakistani intelligence services are holding back on, and uh, our friends aren't helping us too much there. Well, I'm rapidly running out of time here. There's only four minutes left in the program, assuming that Yazoo City calling will start on time, which may not, in fact, be the case. Uh... So let's, I guess, comment briefly on this recent book by Howard Friel and Richard Falk. It's entitled Israel-Palestine on Record, How the New York Times Misreports Conflict in the Middle East. I can't really do uh, this book or the portions that I've read of it so far uh, justice in four minutes, but I do want to call listeners' attention to it. It's a recent book printed by Verso. And these same authors have worked together before on a book called Record of the Paper, How the New York Times Misreports U.S. Foreign Policy. Uh, basically, the position of the book is this, and I'm reading now from its introduction. Despite its august stature, the Times reporting and editorializing on the Israel-Palestine conflict lacks credibility in relation to the professed standards of the newspaper, and yet, because of the paper's reputation and authority, it exerts an unwarranted influence on public attitudes. How the New York Times frames the debate, who is allowed to speak on it within the context of that newspaper's pages, uh, will shape how the rest of the mainstream media in this country uh, 
will handle issues. That's been demonstrated a number of times by dozens of uh, critical writers. And essentially what Freel and Falk have done here is cover the period of September 2000 to September 2006 and looked at key events and compared uh, how these things were covered, uh, how they were reported upon by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. And their basic standard has been to apply the neutral criteria of international law. And they decide, uh, come to the conclusion, uh, not too difficult to arrive at, that the Times, in our judgment, is guilty both of ignoring international law when it conflicts with U.S. foreign policy and of relying upon its authority when it supports official positions adopted in Washington. Again, this is not news to those who have read the newspapers critically for, you know, however much of your adult lifespan you've been able to do that. Um... There's a case in point, though, in a recent issue of the New York Times, and I'll come back to that book uh, next week because I do want to talk a little bit about its chapter on the war against Lebanon of last summer. Um, we're still seeing uh, the after effects of that in Lebanon uh, fairly destabilized, not simply because of the Israeli air attacks, uh, but also the uh, Syrian interference. Uh but this recent article from the New York Times and their international section of June 25th is just a case in point of the very process that uh, Friel and Falk's book uh, analyzes in, in great detail. Here we have a 28-paragraph item on page A11 of the June 25th New York Times. The headline is, Israel to transfer funds from taxes to aid Abbas. 28 paragraphs in this article, and yet only one of the paragraphs relates to the subject of the headline. The headline, of course, is language which positions Israel in a favorable position. Israel transferring funds from taxes to aid Abbas. Okay. Trying to stabilize the situation in the West Bank, Israel's making funds available. Okay, well, that's very interesting. The first paragraph is this. Israel on Sunday agreed to transfer hundreds of millions of dollars of Palestinian tax revenues to the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas of Fatah in an effort to support his new emergency government after the Muslim militants of Hamas seized control of Gaza 10 days ago. Second paragraph, more gestures of Israeli and international support are expected Monday when Egypt will be the host of a meeting between Mr. Abbas and Prime Minister Ehud Omar of Israel. Uh, the aim is to strengthen Abbas's rule in what is generally regarded as the pro-Fatah West Bank. Well, the rest of the article is essentially about uh, Fatah uh, militias uh, and uh, some of the havoc that they wreaked in uh, offices um, and businesses controlled by those with affiliations with Hamas. Nothing else about this transfer of funds, nothing else about the hardships that have been uh, caught up in that, nothing else about whether or not any interest will be paid on that. These funds, after all, uh, which uh, the most recent an article uh, five days later um, was uh, a follow-up on that, <clears throat> It says here, on Sunday, Israel transferred about $120 million, the equivalent of a month's payroll for the entire authority. Um, the fiscal isolation policy uh, sounds an awful lot like collective punishment. When people don't get paid, families don't eat. And so where are the in-depth articles in the New York Times about the effects of uh, this rather bizarre and uh, probably entirely illegal uh, policy? Then, 
you get the articles about honor killings. And this appeared in Sunday, July 1st, um, Sunday Focus section of the Ann Arbor News. Marked women waiting to die. Um, now, of course, uh, nobody's going to defend this practice. Uh, it's, it's a hideous crime against women. Uh, and yet, these are the sorts of articles that appear about Palestinians in the mainstream press. Uh, 